Please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 14, and I pray that the Lord God will bless today's broadcast. I pray that this will be heard loud and clear through the internet, through the shortwave, and eventually when it goes online, may it be to the Lord's glory. I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Revelation 14, Revelation 14, look at verse 1, please. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion, and with him an hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. It, of course, is the mark of the beast, but in reverse. The mark of the beast called for those to have a tattoo of some kind, a barcode of some kind, put on your right hand, in your right hand, on your forehead, in your forehead. And that, of course, would be your allegiance to the Antichrist. Go back to the first century, slaves and soldiers would have some kind of a stamp put on them to show that they belonged to the Roman Empire. And, of course, the Roman Emperor, though many of them, are types of the Antichrist. When Christ came the first time, Rome was very much in control and pretty much putting people down, controlling people's lives. So when Christ returns, Rome again will be very much in control. Of course, I'm referring to the papacy. But here, you've got something which is good. Now again, the mark of the beast is a negative thing. And we spent three Sundays looking at chapter 13. But here, this mark, this Name is a good thing. And I looked, John speaking, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion. Christ, of course. But this Mount Zion is not on the earth. This Mount Zion is far north, probably in heaven, comma. And with him, an hundred forty and four thousand, 144,000, of course, having his father's name written in their foreheads. It's a picture of ownership. Now, the nearest we get to this in the church age will be when we get saved. We are sealed unto the day of redemption. We are bought with a price. Our bodies belong to the Lord. But in the tribulation, the Lord will pick out for himself 144,000 Jewish male virgins for service, not salvation. And in some ways, these Jewish men are types of Christ. And I'll come back to that. And further elaborate, look at verse 2, please, from chapter 14. And I heard a voice from heaven, as a voice of many waters, and as a voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung as it were a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand, which were redeemed from the earth. Now at a point that we're not told about, the Lord has removed them from the earth. Chapter 7, we read about this group of Jewish gentlemen. 12,000 from 12 tribes gives us 144,000. And I think all of the tribes but two are mentioned. Dan is omitted. And yet in the millennium, Dan is back in the fold. Chapter 11, we looked at the two witnesses, of course, that come to the earth, preach the gospel, and are put to death. So between chapter 7... With the arrival of the 144,000, they're mentioned once more, I think, in chapter 9 from memory, or chapter 10. And then by chapter 14, they had been removed from the earth. Now, unfortunately, we're not told much about them. We're not told where they go. We're not told what they do. And yet my understanding is, is that in many ways they are going to repeat the day of Pentecost. 
the day of Pentecost, the Jews get up, Acts 1 and 2, and they preach to the children of Israel. And a few thousand get saved by the first couple of chapters, then a few more thousand get saved a couple of chapters later. And I think by around chapter 15, you got 20,000 saved Jews all over Israel. So my understanding is this, that the Lord will choose 144,000 for service, not salvation, much like he would choose the apostles for service, not salvation. When he came the first time, he had, let's see now, he had the 70 and the 12, that gives you 82. He had other individuals that he could accord to become his 12. And according to Luke chapter 6, he prayed all night and eventually decided to choose his 12, which, of course, became the apostles. Those men, all Jews, of course, were chosen for service. And yet some of those men were married. Some of those men had children. So in some ways, the 12 apostles don't quite match the 144,000. You could argue that Paul was never married. You could argue that uh, John, the son of Zebedee, was never married. And yet even that is speculation. We're not told whether they were married or not. The nearest you can get to this understanding, uh, as far as I'm concerned anyway, would be that the 144,000 are types of Christ, never married, uh, faultless. But from verse 2, you've got a voice from heaven as of the voice of many waters. Very much a throwback to chapter 1, probably demonstrating multiple languages. And as a voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. They're worshipping the Lord. They are in heaven. And at some point, they've been removed from the earth. And some people use this piece of scripture from chapter 14 to argue for a mid-trib rapture. I don't hold to that. I hold to a pre-trib rapture. Verse 3, And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. So they were sinners. They had to get saved, like you and I. And yet, at a point that we're not told about, they have been removed from the earth. They haven't been put to death. They've been able to come to the earth, preach to those on the earth, probably around the area of Israel, the Mediterranean, and perhaps further afield. I'm not overly sure. They've been able to escape the mark of the beast. They've been able to overcome the pressure from the Antichrist, much like Daniel and his friends would do concerning Nebuchadnezzar and at a time that was pleasing to the Lord, he has removed them from the earth. But this song which they sing is only known by themselves and the Lamb. It's a special song which is similar to what Moses and Miriam would sing back in the book of Exodus when they were able to escape Pharaoh. And it says again how no man, no woman could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. There's a picture of intimacy. There's a picture of getting up close and personal with our great God. People say, well, I've always been a Christian. Really? If you can't be sure of a moment in your life when you went from knowing of the Lord to knowing him personally, maybe you're not saved. Everyone should be able to look back over their lives and say there was a time when I didn't know the Lord and I went from unbelief to belief. I went from not knowing him to knowing him personally. Now, for me, I got saved 15 years ago as of this year. And although I was raised in a Catholic family, went to Catholic school, so on and so forth, I didn't know the Lord personally until I got saved 15 years ago. It's a covenant agreement. It's like passing your driving test or uh, 
being offered a job. It's something personal. It's something which you don't forget. But this goes much deeper than that. This is a great picture of fellowship. This is a great picture of walking with a lamb and paying a huge price for that. Look at verse 4, please. These are they which were not defiled women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the lamb. This term, not defiled women, takes you back to probably chapter 2, speaking about uh, Thyatira and Sardis, speaking about sexual immorality, which was rife in the first century. In fact, if you think about the Old Testament account of Eli's sons, which were immoral and were very much causing Eli a lot of grief, and the Lord killed them. And you think about uh, Samuel, and he had a couple of sons who are wayward. So every so often you get a great man like Samuel, a backslider like Eli, who has wayward children, and they cause their parents a lot of grief. But from chapter 2, you've got this reference from verse 14, which probably ties in with that term, not being defiled women, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication, spiritual fornication, physical fornication. One of the problems that Paul would deal with during the first century would be when he would go to places like Corinth, Ephesus, Galatia. A lot of the Gentiles would have sexual acts which were tied in with their worship. And the Lord said, you can't get involved with that type of wickedness. Look at verse 20 from chapter 2. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. So the 144,000 arrive, they are virgins in a physical sense and virgins in a spiritual sense. They won't allow themselves to become defiled with those all around them. They will keep themselves clean, they will keep themselves pure, which shows in many ways that it's possible to live above sin. Now, you can't be without sin all of the time, but what you can do if you put the flesh to death, if you walk in the spirit, if you stay close to the Lord, you can do great things for the Lord. But if you end up straying from the Lord, if you end up trying to do things yourself, you will cause yourself to, in many ways, go back on yourself. So I think when we look at chapter 2 and we look at chapter 14, what we are reading this morning is a picture of the 144,000 a very special group called for service and no doubt anointed to do something very special. But go back to what I said over the last couple of Sundays. If this piece of scripture has been and gone, if this happened around 70 AD, as our pre-trust friends would have us believe, or if this is happening, as the historical people would have us believe, folks like, uh, let's see now, uh, Charles Spurgeon, he held the historical view, as did John Wesley, then ask yourself this, when did this happen? When did the 144,000 arrive on the earth and do what we are reading today? Who are the two witnesses? Which uh, pope can we say is the Antichrist? Or, one better than that, who is the false prophet? Or on top of that, where is the image of the beast today? Or one final thought, where do we see the mark of the beast in evidence today? Where are we seeing around the world today, or over the last couple of centuries, people having this mark in their foreheads or on their right hands? And of course, the answer is it hasn't yet happened. This is still to occur. 
Also from verse 4, what you can't get from this is a reference to Catholic priests. A lot of Catholic priests are married and shouldn't be. A lot of Catholic priests are involved with men and shouldn't be. A lot of Catholic priests have children and shouldn't have. Now this is in reference to Jewish men from the 12 tribes of Israel, chosen for service, not salvation. And they are a special class of people. This is not in reference to the Seventh-day Adventists. This is not in reference to the Mormons. This is not in reference to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Again, this is in reference to Israel. This is a Jewish book. And I wish people could remind themselves of such a fact. But the problem is that we, as Gentiles, read this book many times as a Gentile book. And it's not. The early church was predominantly Jewish. And by the end of the first century, the Jewish remnant died out and the Gentile remnant replaced them. 14.4, again, and I'll move on. These are they which were not defiled women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Now, you can take that verse and apply it to someone living today. Not in a literal sense, but in a spiritual sense. You follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men. Picture of redemption. Purchased, if you will. Being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Go back to chapter 11. You see about the uh, two witnesses preaching the gospel. And at the end of their ministries, the Lord allows the Antichrist to kill them. Could be by uh, execution via a beheading. I'm not overly sure. But these two men are killed. They are left in Israel, either around the Jerusalem area or maybe outside. Probably near the temple, I would imagine. And the Lord resurrects those two. Some have also suggested that that piece of scripture from chapter 11 is also reference to a mid-trib rapture. But I don't get that. What I get from chapter 11 is just the rapture of two men. And here 14, 1, 2, 3, and 4, I am reading about the removal from the earth of only the 144,000. No more, no less. Look at verse 5, please, from chapter 14. And in the mouth was found no guile, for they were without fault before the throne of God. I read that this morning, and I thought of that piece of scripture from the Gospel of John, which I'm going to read now very quickly. John, uh, John chapter 1, look at verse 47, please. Jesus saw Nathanael come unto him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. What a great thing to say. There's no deceit in this man, Nathaniel. There's no deceit in this sister in the Lord. There's no deceit in this brother in the Lord. This is a picture of integrity. This could also be a picture of one's testimony. Jesus saw Nathaniel come into him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. I love that. Go back to chapter 14, please. Chapter 14. Look at verse 5 again. And in the mouth was found no guile. They've been able to control their tongues. They don't slander people. They don't gossip about people. And in their mouth was found no guile. Almost faultless. Almost perfect, but not quite. For they are without fault before the throne of God. They were redeemed from the earth. They preached the gospel. They got many saved. And we read about such from chapters 6, 7, 8, 9 and 10 and beyond. And the Lord takes them back to glory. And here they are being commended. This could also be a picture, to some extent, of the judgment seat of the Lord. We know that when we die, we are 
absent from the body, present with the Lord. We go straight to be with the Lord. And we are judged and we give an account of ourselves to him. Not concerning our salvation, thankfully, but concerning our works, concerning our everyday lives, concerning what we did and what we didn't do. And it's important that we remember that. People say, well, I'm not overly worried about the judgment seats of the Lord. You will. You will when you get there. It may be that you haven't done any of the big sins since you got saved. Okay, wonderful. But how about those things that you should have done and didn't do? Sins of omission, sins of commission. You understand what I'm saying? Look at verse 6, please, from chapter 14. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And I thought to myself last night when I read this and also this morning that this type of a message from an angel is similar perhaps to what Noah would have preached to his type of an audience. Noah would preach for 120 years. And of course we know that he didn't get a single soul saved. And here you've got an angel flying through the midst of heaven. Could be between the first heaven the second heaven between heaven and earth when you are in flights somewhere you are technically between heaven and earth you are technically between the first heaven and the second heaven and you are told from galatians that if an angel comes to you and preaches another gospel let that angel be accursed and i think of uh, moroni who would pay a visit to joseph smith or so we are told and I think of Gabriel, that would pay a visit to Muhammad, or so we are told. And yet Paul told you very clearly that such an angel, or such a person, Galatians 1, I think it's verses 6 to 9 from memory, is to be accursed, is to be anathema. So you are now left with a dilemma. What do we do with this angel? Paul puts a curse on an angel that comes with another message. And here this angel is flying to the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel the eternal gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people. But this gospel isn't the gospel of the grace of God. This gospel isn't the gospel of the kingdom. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven, and earth, and the sea, and the fountains of waters. This, of course, is a gospel of judgment. This, of course, is mankind's final opportunity to get right with the Lord. People say, well, aren't these people earmarked for destruction? Yes. And haven't they been condemned by their taking of the mark of the beast? Chapter 13, yes. And yet the Lord still loves them. In fact, keep your hand there. Go to uh, Mark chapter 12. And there's a good scripture here in uh, Mark chapter 12 which needs to be read. A lot of the time, our Calvinist friends approach the scripture in a very dogmatic manner. They are very black and white. And they will say, well, the Lord has chosen those that he's going to save. And he came to earth and died for those that he was going to save. And if he didn't choose you, if he didn't die for you, you are completely cut off. You have no chance whatsoever in being redeemed by the Lamb. Mark 12, look at verse 34, please. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, 
Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Concerning a scribe, verse 32. Concerning a Pharisee. Concerning the type of people that would snipe at the Lord. Would criticize the Lord. And when Jesus saw him, he answered discreetly and said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. What a thing to say. You're not far. And no man after that durst ask him any question. He shut their mouths. Which of course is a picture of the great white throne judgment. So what you've got here from Mark chapter 12. And go back to Revelation chapter 14. Is the Lord speaking to those that were against him. Trying to win those to him. Even at the 11th hour. There was still an opportunity to be saved. Look at the thief on the cross. That man was probably a murderer. On top of being a thief. He may have been immoral as well. He may have been into fornication or adultery. We don't know. And he turns to the Lord and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And his colleague next to the Lord is cursing him, blaspheming him, making fun of him. And those three die around the same time. Christ goes into the ground, takes the repentant thief with him into the ground. And as they go into the ground together, the other thief is burning in a flame. Luke 16. In torment in a flame. Weeping and wailing in a flame. Picturing the first death, of course. And Christ goes into the ground with a repentant thief. Sees the other thief burning, being tormented. Cursing, cussing, dying in his sin. Which is what happens when people die. They die as they lived. And his friend thinks, what a lucky escape I had. Praise the Lord, of course. But my point is this. Even right up until the last moments of the Lord on the earth... He was still saving people and the thief on the cross turned to the Lord, like I say, and believed on him, received him. So, yes, deathbed conversions are uh, possible. They do happen. But when it came to two people dying at the same time, only one got saved. So it's 50-50, if you will. Revelation chapter 14, look at verse 8, please. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of a fornication. Babylon is fallen. Old Testament, Iraq. New Testament, probably Rome. Babylon is fallen. Is fallen that great city. Why? Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of a fornication. Spiritual fornication, for the most part. And yet, perhaps, physical fornication as well. And if you ever... Take the time to read a newspaper or watch television or surf the internet. You will see many VIPs going to Rome to meet the Pope. And I've said this before and I'll say it again that whenever the US president goes to Europe, he nearly always visits the Vatican to speak to the Pope, to brief the Pope. He doesn't go to Utah to brief the head of the Mormons. He doesn't go to Brooklyn to brief the head of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And he doesn't go to visit the head of the SDA. He doesn't go to Canterbury to brief the Archbishop of Canterbury. He goes to Rome to brief the Pope. And as far as I know, the Americans haven't had an American president since the 1960s. So since the 1960s, you've had maybe half a dozen US presidents, all Protestant, probably Freemasons as well, taking the time out of their busy schedules to go to Rome to visit the Pope. What's going on? British Prime Ministers have also gone to Rome on many occasions. Since 2007, when Tony Blair stood down, he became a Catholic. 
Britain has never had a Catholic Prime Minister. On top of that, the Queen of England has been to Rome several times. In fact, if you think back to 2005, when Prince Charles uh, married his second wife, Camilla Parker Bowles, their wedding was arranged around April 2005, May 2005, and around that time, John Paul II died. And Charles said, well, we'll have the wedding anyway. No, he didn't. He cancelled the wedding, and he went to Rome to pay homage to the Pope. Charles is not a Catholic, and he arrived in Rome along with three American presidents. And those three American presidents got down on their knees, along with the current Secretary of State at that time, and I think Laura Bush also got down on her knees. You've got three American presidents. You've got George Bush Jr., George Bush Sr., good old Skull and Bones man, and Bill Clinton, along with Laura Bush, Condoleezza Rice, and not far away from there, Prince Charles and some other VIPs, kneeling down beside a corpse. What is going on there? Babylon has fallen and has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations, like Britain and America, drink of the wine of the wrath of a fornication. It's like this. If you enter into a covenant, or you become a member of a religious system, like the Freemasons, for example, you take an oath. And once you take an oath, you are bound to that system. And that's why you need to be set free from that system. And yet many people never get free of that system it's like that old expression goes you can take the man out of the gutter but you can't take the gutter out of the man you can take the man out of the seminary but you can't take the seminary out of the man it never leaves you and there followed another angel saying babylon is forward and is forward in that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of a fornication now as far as i know every nation in the world has some kind of a relationship with Rome. Islamic, Jewish, Gentile. And they go to Rome to meet the so-called Holy Father, Vicarius Felier Day, 666. When females go to visit the Pope, they have to dress in black. Even the Queen of England has to dress in black. It's a picture of mourning. It's a picture of being a sinner in the presence of holiness, so-called. And you've seen many pictures over the years of people going to the Vatican to receive a blessing. And they arrive hoping to get something from the papacy. And on many occasions they leave without receiving anything from the papacy. But my point is this. They can't afford not to go to Rome. And of course you know that when they arrive, whether it's the American president or the British prime minister or the French president or the... Israeli Prime Minister, or the leader of Saudi Arabia, or the leader of Jordan, you know perfectly well that they're not sitting down having a Bible study. They're talking business. They're talking shop. They're talking about stocks and shares. They're talking about moving perhaps secret agents around. These are men of the world. And yet for millions of Catholics, they can't see this. They are blinded. And they are willfully ignorant. So I will leave it there, looking at these first eight verses. I don't want to go beyond these verses for today. And what you've got from today's study is a crash course, I think, concerning the 144,000 that have been redeemed from the earth. They have the name of their father, being the uh, father of the Lamb, God the Father, of course. 
They have his name written in their foreheads. They belong to him. And John hears some kind of a sound coming from heaven. He sees and hears them using harps to worship the Lord. They sing a song which is pleasing to the Lord. They have a great testimony, verse 4. They haven't been defiled. They haven't got involved with uh, temple prostitution. They haven't defiled themselves. Of course, marriage per se isn't going to result in somebody being defiled. But if you take sexual acts outside of marriage and apply them to a uh, religious sense or add a religious connotation to it, then you are defiled. And you are told from the book of Hebrews how the Lord will judge whoremongers and adulterers, so on and so forth. In their mouth was found no guile, verse 5, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Remarkable. Great men, 6, 7, and also 8, you've got an angel flying in the midst of heaven. Not preaching the gospel of the grace of God. Not preaching the kingdom of heaven. And not preaching another gospel either. Galatians chapter 1. Because if this angel was preaching another gospel, if this angel had gone against Galatians chapter 1, it would be accursed. Like Moroni was. Like Gabriel was. This angel is preaching a gospel or a message of judgment, like Noah would do, and perhaps even Lot, to some extent, which shows me that even at this 11th hour, even at this point at the end of the tribulation, which we'll look at next Sunday, it's still not too late for people to be saved. That shows the mercy of God, and yet people say, I don't want to be saved. People think they're pretty good. People think they don't need to be saved, and I will talk about that more next week. And this angel wants them to fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Out goes evolution, creation. And verse 8, one final time and I will close. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of a fornication. She has seduced Every nation possible going right back to Caesar Augustus. Every nation has become intoxicated with her fornication, by her black magic. They have become bewildered by that whore, that harlot, which sits on seven hills. And if you don't believe me, just write your president, your prime minister, your king, your queen, your prince, your leader, and ask him or her why they go to Rome on a regular basis why they send their ambassadors to Rome on a regular basis. What do they have to talk about? And you might be quite surprised what they tell you in their response. But again, people are ignorant. People don't want to be made aware of this. They want to remain deceived and blinded. And that goes back to 2 Corinthians 4, for how Satan, the god of this world, has blinded the minds, the hearts of those that refuse to believe the truth, which is also cross-referenced back to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and yet one final time, even at this 11th hour, there is still a chance to be saved. But if you want to call this a second chance, uh, you can do so. But for me, I think it's probably too little too late. And yet go back to that scripture from Mark 12:34. You're not far from the kingdom of God. So you've got two things going on. They've got the Lord's sovereignty, the Lord's judgment. The Lord is about to roar as the line of the tribe of Judah, and consume around 2 billion plus from the face of the earth. And yet at the same time, he's offering the chance to be saved. He is putting his hand out. He's reaching out to anyone, anywhere to be saved. 
and yet the road to hell is wide. The gate entrance to heaven is narrow, and few the be which find it, because most people think they are good. Most people think they don't need to be saved, but I won't get into that now. I will leave it there in verse 8, and next week, Lord willing, pick it up in verse 9 from Revelation chapter 14.